I suppose one of the most dramatic uh, aspects in, in all history at all times is when a people uh, have a difficult time, a people anywhere in the world, and out of that group of people emerges someone who speaks for them, their dreams, their aspirations, and justice. In the case, a uh, dramatic case in India, of course, would be Gandhi. In the early American Revolution, certain spokesmen came along, whether it be Jefferson the aristocrat or uh, one of the men leading the colonials. In the case of Mexican-Americans, as one figure emerges in the middle of this 20th century, his name is Cesar Chavez. And perhaps many of the listeners know of the Farm Workers Association and the dramatic march in California and the Delano country and campaigning, campaigning indeed, striving for uh, minimal aspects of right. And Mr. Chavez is here under the auspices of the Johnny Ryan Forum. And I thought, uh, I've, always, I've, heard, I've read of Mr. Chavez a great deal, Cesar Chavez, and always admired him. I think of you right now, uh, it's been somewhat exhausting for you these three, four years, you know, since the group itself was called the, um, what, the National Farm Workers Association? Uh, it's, that's been changed uh, lately because we merged with another uh, group in California that was trying to also attempt to organize farm workers into unions. And uh, we are now called the United Farm Workers Organizing Committee, and it's affiliated with the AFL-CIO. I'm thinking of, of how this became, or how you yourself came to be the, the uh, person you are, too. There was, we know of the Selma Montgomery march that was so dramatic in which the Negro people were fighting for elementary rights. There was a march that you led. How this came to this march 300 miles of Southern California territory. Well, there's a lot of history behind that march. Uh, there's many years of organizing and uh, trying to get people together to um, uh, protest, to claim those rights that are so, you know, fundamental, a right to live, a right to have enough to eat and so forth. But um, the idea of the march came some years back uh, when myself and others like me were involved in a legislative battle in California trying to obtain old-age assistance for the aged Mexicans who were not citizens but who had worked there for 40, 50, and 60 years and came to the end of their working days and uh, they didn't have a way to live. And so I was proposing a march from the from the uh, Mexican border to Sacramento. So we were able to get the legislation, so it never came about. But I... Um, got that idea from reading uh, 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 Gandhi in, in India and the dramatic march that he... You did read Gandhi? Yes. And uh, as I read it, I began to... Uh, well, not to imitate him because that's impossible. He was a saint, you know. But uh, the idea of a march is very appealing. It's... Uh, 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 you talk of uh, organizing or togetherness or uh, cooperation. Marching is a form of, um, I don't think there's any other form, and this includes, includes meetings, where people feel some uh, togetherness, some brotherhood. They're doing the same thing. It's a very relaxed thing. It's, and above all, you're, you're gaining. You're, you, you see that you're physically making progress as you're walking. That is, you are walking. You are walking. Something are physical you. is involved, yes. too. And uh, uh, I, for, for maybe 10 years or so, 
uh, toyed around with the idea that farm workers would probably have to do this to to dramatize their their plight and the need for uh, for some social change. So it was. Uh, Before I ask you about the farm workers, their plight, and the fact that they, these, this is the neglected group that, in a way, John Steinbeck memorialized in Grapes of Wrath, of course, and you, in the case of Mexican-Americans and the grape pickers, have made come a reality. Uh, Mark, I want to ask about Cesar Chavez, how he came to be, and really Gandhi. But the march, you also, it was, it was sort of <coughs> religious in nature, too. It was a labor, uh, it was a, there was a labor struggle involved. At the same time, you carried banners of Our Lady of Guadalupe, and you sang... Uh, yes, see, um, um, the whole feeling of uh, um, there's no reason why a movement has to be dry and sad. You know, movement can be uh, joyous and can be uh, um, alegre, as we say in alegre. Spanish. Alegre. Uh, uh, nice feeling tempo. With tempo. And uh, it has to be because, one, it's very difficult to survive, you know, because it's not a, a day or a week, you know, it's years and years. But also, uh, you know, the the as, as all groups, of course, as all groups, we as uh, Mexicans or Mexican Americans have a very rich tradition, and uh, we're attempting to incorporate these uh, traditional things, the part of the culture and so forth, into the things we're doing. It's a lot easier to explain to people and to people to understand when you incorporate these things that are so much a part of them. Um, the uh, Having Our Lady Guadalupe and a banner in front, you know, was a very, uh, no, it was no real stroke. It was no real great idea. It just came because she's been involved in uh, two or three revolutions in Mexico. And um, um, and in, in, in fact, in, in all... In Zapata used her too. Zapata. And all, all the movements where the poor were involved, she was there. So this was, um, like, accepted. Uh and uh, the we sang songs and we have a lot of color and uh, a lot of red and black and white and we get criticized sometimes for these you things. You see the connection, uh, as you say, between the culture of the people, the very lives, and here is their the patron saint. So it's not just something removed from life; it's part of very life itself. Part, just part and using all of those uh, experiences that we've had and incorporating them in such a way that we can. Uh, um, come together and then demand or, or ask or uh, plead with or whatever the word, the further, whatever the proper word is, to gain those rights that uh, we want. It was a singing march then, songs. Mm. Do you recall, not to ask you to sing, but if you can, great. Do you recall, these are songs that everyone knew from childhood. Uh, yes, and then uh, we also learned a lot of new songs that... Um, or we'd rather we sang a lot of songs that we learned from the civil rights movement and a lot of old uh, folk songs and labor songs that are that are a part of the tradition here in America too. There is a connection then. In, in, in short, perhaps if we could draw some threads together because it's the life of Chavez that to me is so thrilling. Cesar Chavez himself, our guest. The, the, um, the connection between the Negro Revolution and uh, the Mexican-Americans campaigning for their elementary rights is not a remote one. It was in a no, way. no, it isn't. It's, uh, in the first place, it's a, it involves people. And secondly, it involves people who are striving for certain rights. Uh, I would say that a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, uh, 
courage and a lot of uh, um, um, willingness to do things came to the Mexican-American because of the example, the beautiful example that the Negro set in his setting, you know, for demanding these rights, particularly the, the whole idea of non-violence. It's very appealing to us. Um, I think it's very appealing to all people. Um, and so it's not, it's not a, a distant thing. I think it has an awful lot of things in common. How did you, now we come to the story, Yuma, Arizona, you're about 38 now. 39, Cesar Chavez, who is the, the spokesman, you might say the spirit of it, though uh, you will deny it, of course, you will speak of others, your colleagues who are part of it. Did you yourself, how did, where did you get this? Your childhood, Yuma, Arizona. Let me go back to that. Well, it's a very long story. It's not, a, it's not a, an interesting or a dramatic story, it's just a very simple uh, story. Um, my father had a, a small plot of land there that was uh, left to him by my grandfather who uh, homesteaded the land, who in turn came from Mexico as a, well he was a peon in the, this was before the Mexican Revolution, and he escaped bondage there and came to Texas and then went to Arizona and uh, somewhere along the line he became a citizen and he homesteaded the land and then uh, my father grew up there and uh, I was born there. Then. Uh, during the Depression, uh, he lost that uh, piece of land he had. So we went to California. We became uh, migratory workers. And I must have been around eight, I guess, eight or nine years old then. And uh, we joined the migratory stream, and we crisscrossed that state for maybe 15 years or more until, uh, well, uh, most of us got married, and then uh, sort of broke up the family, and then uh, uh, some of us, uh, after having our own families, continued the migratory stream, and others uh, uh, not uh, so much. Um, then, oh, about 1950, there was a movement in, in California, a very quiet movement, but, but a very effective movement called the Community Service Organization. Uh, that movement was uh, being helped by the Industrial Air Foundation out of Chicago, who Solalinsky heads. And um, Saul and uh, Fred Ross, who was the West Coast director for the IAF in those days, uh, was the chief organizer among Mexican-Americans. It was a civic uh, group. And um, I uh, through the influences of a uh, priest, I joined the movement and um, began to learn things. And but most of all, began to to have a uh, an opportunity to see organization develop and learn from Fred Ross and some from uh, Mr. Olinsky. And so, I began to get ideas but that uh, the farm worker could um, could do something. Although it, we were not organizing farm workers directly. We were working with them, but uh, most of the things that we were doing then, I became an organizer after a while, and I went on the staff and had tremendous experiences with them, and uh, all my, my life changed. And uh, uh, it gave, it opened new vistas and gave me ideas. And so the idea, of course, was that if it works here, why couldn't it work for a union with farm workers? When you were eight, you were nine, and now you became part of a migrant family. 
your father was your father involved now and then with strikes that lost defeated and attempts that were made did you see things as a little kid yes there were uh, uh well it, it, i recall some of the examples for instance uh one of the things that i recall because uh it is even so today uh, he has he used to join about every every farm worker union that came around so everybody was in california trying to organize farm workers and so he's preserved many of the membership cards from various unions maybe six seven eight unions and um whenever there was a strike he was the first one that was joined uh most of the strikes were short-lived uh, we ourselves made some strikes uh, uh when i when we grew and you know to a little older and uh, we were working out in the fields we would have protest strikes uh, we would uh, uh, it wasn't a real organized strike it was a protest and we would quit the job and we would argue with the uh, farm labor contractor or the grower we would quit or we would try and get the people to walk out and uh, it was an organized thing but it was a protest we were saying we don't want the conditions we want to we want out we want some change and usually what it amounted to was that you would leave or you get fired and then you probably get another job and it was a constant protest, uh, not only ourselves, but uh, many, many families. And uh, But uh, one of the vivid uh, memories that I have on unions, this was, uh, n I'm not, it must have been the during the heyday of the uh, CIO in the 1937, 38. Uh, they were um, trying to organize uh, some of uh, the... Uh, prune pickers in Santa Clara Valley, in San, uh, that's in San Jose, near San Jose. And together with that, they were also organizing the fruit sheds that uh, where the prunes are processed. And uh, I remember uh, my my uh, father and my uncle joining the, the union and uh, remember having the organizer come to the house and talk to them about the union. I remember my father talking to my mother about the union. Remember, um, uh, my uncle, uh, my mother, and and uh, some of the other adults, you know, concerned about uh, whether whether would win out, whether the union would win, and or concerned with maybe this, their own safety and uh, these things. Um, I don't remember really uh, all of the uh, details, but I do remember there was. Sort of an exciting thing yeah. because it was you know different and uh, I didn't understand why. But uh, uh, as kids, you know, you yeah. we stayed up uh, later than usual yeah. to see what was happening and want to be around. There's something you, as a little kid, remember as Mexican American families that your father and his friends, even though they failed, even though it missed, they were trying for something. You knew a light that could be that was better. Many, many. Uh, people tried 40, 50 years have been trying, even possibly longer. I think uh, some there are s there are some uh, uh, recorded things way back in the before the turn of the century, when the Chinese were organizing and the Japanese uh, initiating the slowdowns and uh, Chinese uh, the Chinese farm workers on the coast on the coast the uh, ones that railroad were railroad workers too. Well, these are the ones. After the railroads were built, you know, they were displaced. They were uh, gotten rid of, and they had no place to go to but to agriculture. Uh, this is how the, the farm labor uh, contractor uh, de uh, developed. You know, the 
Chinese would come to the farm and say, uh, did any work done? The grower would say, yes. Well, I have in San Francisco, I have two, three hundred Chinese who would like to work. So he became the middleman and became a very, it, even to this day, a very, uh, very bad system. You perhaps even would, would continue with, as we talk, Cesar Chavez, it'd be back up for free association, the story of your life. You mentioned contractors, farm labor. In Grapes of Wrath, which you know, I know very well, John Steinbeck's novel dealing with the Oklahoma people coming to California. Uh, the contractors, <coughs> and because the farm laborers are left out of the Employment Practices Act, aren't they? Farm uh, see, uh, we are excluded from the National Labor Relations Act uh, when uh, the New Deal came around and uh, the, the industrial workers got uh, that New Deal, you know, we didn't get a new deal. We were excluded, and the workers, the, or rather the growers lobby, did a very good job on Roosevelt and the new dealers by convincing them that somehow, somehow agriculture was different, and somehow those people who work in agriculture were also different. But it wasn't only, I, as we analyze this and as we ask ourselves, why in that great period when so much social change was being taking place, why was this group of workers excluded? And I've come to realize, uh, and not as a charge, you know, but just uh, trying to really understand it, we know that the, that the growers have a lot of power and have a lot of power and influence money and so forth. But uh, I think that one of the reasons is that if you look across the land uh, and you see who, who does the work in the, in the farms, you'll see that... Uh, a very large majority of the, of the workers are uh, minority group people. Negroes, Mexicans, Filipinos, uh, uh, Arabians, uh, Japanese, uh, people from the West Indies. And I somehow think that that probably also played a, a part in it, that there was some discrimination there against this group. So the concern wasn't as deep there as if uh, we had been, you know, they, uh, Caucasians, Caucasians, whites, yeah. they didn't count. They don't count as much. You're talking now about the New Deal, a very enlightened and thrilling labor period it would seem. Yet deep, deep down, there was the fact that some, almost subconsciously, excluded, right. if not consciously. Right. right. And uh, it's very difficult to understand. And so, while you can get very excited about the New Deal, you know, when you come to that black spot, you know, it's very difficult to understand why. And so in a sense, as you said earlier, the Negro Revolution uh, not accidentally played its role too in the Farm Workers Association <coughs> uh, drive through. There is this this double thread here that connects. There is. There is very much so. Uh, we had, uh, see our movement uh, uh, over there in, in California we wanted very much to be to have a non-violent movement along with what we were doing, and uh, we had been following the uh, civil rights movement, and uh, we started the strike. And two days later, in fact, uh, following that after I started the strike, I called on. I didn't know the people in the SNCC, the Student uh, Nonviolent Violent Coordinating Committee, and uh, CORE, but I put in uh, calls to their national offices and explain to them what we were doing and uh, they hadn't heard about it yet. They, it wasn't news really. And uh, asked them if they could send uh, one man. 
each, you know, to come and be with us. And and uh, they very gladly complied immediately. So about the third or fourth day of the strike, we had uh, some young uh, fellows that came to be with us. And uh, they began to to uh, talk to us, to us or answer questions uh, about nonviolence. And we never had any formal, I never agreed that we should have any formal sessions on nonviolence. But I wanted to know some of their experiences, like for instance, what happens when you get hit? And uh, and uh, to to see if we could understand, you know. And uh, as we, as the strike continued, we, uh, all of us, uh, not because we wanted, but because we had chosen this uh, philosophy, had to pass through through these uh, trials. And uh, happily enough, uh, all of us have been able to yeah. to uh, remain unviolent. And again, the Gandhi-esque approach too. At the same time, the strength, the not passive at all, active. Active. Uh, now, there's of course always a question in my mind. I don't think that. Yeah, nonviolence should be used only as a tactic, but I but it's a it's a very powerful weapon. Anybody says nonviolence is not power is mistaken. It's very powerful. There's there aren't any weapons against it. There's no way it can be challenged. There's no way it can be. It's devastating. It's just uh, uh, like a sail full of wind, and then all of a sudden it rips, and there's nothing there. You just can't get a hold of it, but it's there. And uh, but. It's a, I think, a more beautiful thing if it can be perfected, like Gandhi, for instance, where it becomes a way of life and not as an expedient or not as a tactic. And we haven't done that, and uh, it'd be a very beautiful thing. But I don't know that we can. But it's a goal anyway. Cesar Chavez is our guest. And, uh, a man, a moment ago, you were speaking. It was quite poetic as you were describing the power of nonviolence. You yourself. As far as formal education, <coughs> it's almost all self-education, is it not, in your case? Yes, there isn't, uh, I'd be willing to say, there isn't a migratory uh, worker my age or even a little old, a little younger who had the opportunity to go to school. Uh, I went to, uh, as a lot of other farm workers, I'm sure, went to, uh, I went to something like 37 schools, grade schools, and uh, was able to to complete 37 the, to complete uh, through the seventh grade and, and the beginning of the eighth grade, and uh, uh, it was so difficult to go to school. Uh, you know, the schools we went to one day, schools that we went to for a week, schools that we went to and they wouldn't take us in because we happened to be of a different uh, color, you know, or a different uh, background. Schools that we went to, which segregated three ways: Mexicans on one school, Negroes on the other one, and the Anglos on the other one. A and uh, days that we couldn't go to school because we didn't have shoes, or days we can go to school because we just didn't have anything to eat, and so all of these things. But somehow, uh, we were able to to get a little uh, schooling, and then uh, the rest I've just uh, learned from associating with good men. You know, I'm thinking as we hear Cesar Chavez talk, we speak of uh, two aspects of our country, one we know about and we don't know about at all. Just telling us now, so little known it is, the deprivations of the people, in this case the Mexican-Americans of the Southwest. And Woody Guthrie, as you know, Woody does dust bowl oh, yeah. ballads, and one of the songs yeah. is Pastures of Plenty. 
and the lines are so directly connected with you and you know I worked in your orchards of peaches and prunes I slept on the ground in the light of your moon on the edge of your city you'll see us and then we come with the dust and we go with the wind and it goes on California Arizona which you know well Cesar Chavez I make all your crops it's up north to Oregon to gather your hops, dig the beets from your ground, cut the grapes from your vine, to set on your table your light sparkling wine. And somehow it's this aspect that is now becoming recognized thanks to you and your colleagues and your march and your organization. I suppose it's hard for us, again, people living in the city, part of what is known as an affluent society, yet we know there are deep, 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 more than pockets of poverty, but the valleys of it. The farm worker himself, you weren't even getting minimum minimum wages for a while, isn't it? Well, um, the our organizing drive has affected a very small percentage of the total work uh, workforce. See, um, this uh, country has run on the assumption that farm workers are different and agriculture is different, and uh, there is a a uh, contradiction here that. Uh, it's a very sad thing that those who harvest the food don't have food themselves. And just like those who uh, work in a shoe factory not having shoes to wear. Uh, it's a very, but in this case even more so because it's food the, the most necessary thing in life, the, indis the, the indispensable thing in life. And um, with the uh, advances, you know, the technology in our country, all the advances, the richness, all these things. And uh, it just doesn't fit. It just shouldn't be there. And the wonder is that with all of these things that are happening in our country, that that we ourselves permitted to be there. Uh, it's one of the evils, of course, as others, you know, like disc racial discrimination and so forth. But this isn't another evil. And um, getting mad about it doesn't really change anything. And uh, wishing to do something doesn't really change anything, but getting in there and, and working, you know, just uh, slowly and with uh, patience, uh, and bringing uh, the idea and the, the, the understanding to the worker himself that something can be done. Now, uh, we've been in the struggle now for five years. It'll be five years next month next month, but only a year and a half in a strike. Um, we've had some dramatic victories, but when you consider the whole workforce in America, uh, it's just a, a very small number of people that are affected by the gains. So we have people working now at $2 an hour and with uh, uh, some very important gains, not so much the those uh, material gains like money and better working conditions, they're important. But even more important, the I think the, the most important thing is that somehow, you know, at long last, there's that dignity that, you know, has been returned to us. Mm -hmm. uh, not because the word sounds nice and because dignity is a good thing. No, because what it does to men, you know, and to their families and uh, to... It, it changes the whole life, you know, it, it just... Um, it's a very beautiful thing to have it happen, but um, even though, you know, all these dramatic uh, uh, victories and experiences, it's a very small group. Now, our job is to 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 get uh, the farm worker to organize himself, 
we can do it. It would cost about a million dollars a month, if we were, or say a million. It would cost no less than five million dollars a year if we were to staff, uh, a p have a paid staff with all of the money needed to send people all over the country. But we have more than that. We have people, and uh, these people now have some. Uh, they've seen some victories. They have courage, and it's a movement. A movement with ideas, and that can't be stopped. Of course, this point that Cesar Chavez is talking about, this point, you mentioned this very key point, this intangible that is so powerful, a man's sense of personal worth. I mean, for all these years, I suppose, with migrant farm workers, Mexicans, minority groups, you feel you're nobody. You're told you're nobody. Thus, it affects the <coughs> child, affects the father, affects the mother, and suddenly the recognition that there's something you can do. You are somebody. And this becomes very uh, evident. Uh, for instance, uh, some, uh, oh, just uh, uh, difficult to explain, put in words, the experiences, for instance. Uh, as you're working, you yourself are, you know, gaining and learning a lot, more than, you're getting more than what you're giving, but uh, imagine a group of workers who are, have been working with the same employer for, say, 12 years, or 15 years, or five years, and then uh, the strike is won, and then they go and they sit on a table right across from him, and for the very first time meet as man to man. Uh, it's it's a, a great feeling, uh, and it also carries, you know, to just to the very last worker in that in that ranch. It, it doesn't matter if there's a thousand or two of them or a hundred, you know. It carries the very last man, and then. That also carries into the families and to the kids, and it's... It it's affects every aspect of life. Every, every aspect. A sense of personal worth to someone. I That's the most important yes. thing. Yes. I suppose when, during that march, when word came that one of the large distillers gave in, that is, you, you, you didn't know whether you're going to win or lose. And you, and yes, we... And some moment. It was a very dramatic moment. Um, the... This was on on uh, the fourth uh, of April of uh, last year, of 1966. 1966. We had been on strike oh, about eight months, and um, the call came in a day before. Um, we were we were at Stockton, California, and we were uh, just got there that day, and a call came in, and uh, I I say this because it was uh, sort of a shock when it came in. Although we we wanted victory and we needed victory very badly, uh, all of us expected that when victory came, it was going to sort of arrive in a uh, with a lot of music and trumpets and victory was, you know, and that when the growers called, it was going to be a uh, a very formal thing. We we'd never had the experience. We you know what, and so we're in Stockton and uh, there was a telephone call for me and I went and I got the call and there was a voice on the other side of the line and said that he was uh, with Shanley and he wanted to uh, uh, recognize our union and sit down to write a contract. Of course I thought this he was kidding and I said you're kidding you know and I I uh, hung up on him because we had, had similar calls you know uh, all during the strike. Then I, know I was getting ready I I was walking out of the room and the phone rang again. I came back and I answered it and he called around back again in the same voice. 
with the same message, so I took it more seriously. And what, uh, what happened when you announced it? Well, when it was announced, it's one of the things that can be described with words, but it was a, a feeling that... Uh, has that, that sound of the machine here at this dramatic moment, asking Mr. Chavez, uh, what happened that moment? Now, I know it's very difficult to describe that triumphant moment. Um, well, as uh, it usually happens in a thing, in a in uh, development of this sort, uh, I made the announcement uh, as uh, undramatically as I could, and I suppose it was at least uh, 15, if not 30 seconds of complete disbelief. Uh, then it sort of began to, to register on, on uh, different uh, people. Uh, uh, there was great Joy, of course, jubilation, uh, a lot of tears, and uh, well, all the things that go together with it, with a announcement like this, it was uh, um, a great uh, celebration took place right then and there. Uh, we had carried with us Shenley boycott signs, so uh, someone suggested that we should uh, burn them, and we did. And uh, no sooner we burned them, so and we had a about a half an hour rest, we were marching the side of the road, and someone suggested we should immediately um, uh, make some more signs, new signs for the other, mm -hmm. the other uh, struggle. But the announcement was very dramatic. Uh, I came, uh, thanks God, at a time when we really needed it. Yeah. It was uh, eight, over eight months struggle. See. But uh, these, the some of the amazing things, uh, there are a lot of near miracles that have taken place in this movement, and one of, m one of them was the willingness of the people to, to persist for so long. Eight months is a long time when uh, there's no experiences, when they've never before had any victories, when really no unions have ever been built and all the attempts have been defeats. Uh, in fact, when by the time we got the first recognition of the contract, uh, the, the uh, morale of the people was even higher than the beginning. Uh, and at this point, uh, there are some workers there who could have gone back to work in those places where we've settled a dispute, and, but they don't want to go back to work. Uh, they say that, uh, no, I, I want to stay and see the whole thing through because uh, I want to see that uh, other workers get those things that uh, I could have got, that I already got because of the settling the contract with my employer and other workers will have because they return back to work. I want to see the thing through. Uh, it's a movement. Uh, it's a lot of, uh, it's a new thing. Uh, an awful lot of liberty uh, in the movement. Uh, yeah, I'm the oldest one in the movement. You are at 38. Well, I'm the oldest of the, of the leadership, you know. And uh, my young colleagues have come up to join you. Oh, yes. We have, uh, most of our organizers are the, with the exception of the director of organization, the uh, director of the organizing drives, uh, all of our organizers are right out of the fields, and uh, the oldest one is 23 or 24. Oh, the, the development is, is something... Uh, you see this, astounding. I suppose, to you, Cesar Chavez, the beginner, I suppose there's a joy, too, in seeing these young guys become leaders, too. That's... Uh, uh, 
nothing can 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 compensate that. Uh, no amount of money or prestige or or personal uh, recognition will is as good and as uh, satisfying to see other people being underdeveloped. It's really great. I think in, in the story of Cesar Chavez, if I could be a little dramatic, and yet drama sometimes is right, too. Mm -hmm. There's a parable here, too, of a man and a people. And uh, though he hasn't said it, he turned down a job of $21,000 a year to be the uh, Peace Corps director for some of the Latin American countries to still work at 125 an hour in Delano to work with his colleagues, with his people. And this, too, is the satisfaction that you see now. There's still a number of rivers to cross, though. There's still about six or seven uh, tough obstacles ahead. Always a struggle. Always a struggle. Uh, I suppose we'll be struggling for the next uh, 20 years, but in the meantime, some progress is being made. Uh, there are a number of uh, very difficult things we have to resolve, but uh, the the best, the biggest one, the best one has been resolved, and that is that uh, the movement is on and it's marching. It's got legs and it's going. One last question of Cesar Chavez. What do you want out of life now? Well, um, I think that uh, I wanted to see uh, some uh, concrete proof that it could be done, and that's been accomplished, although it's in a very small way, but it's been accomplished. Now, um, I'll accept anything that comes. Um, I have, uh, uh, if everything goes well, I have a number of years to, to give to it. And uh, if the workers uh, want me, I'll be there. You know. Um, uh, someone asked me, uh, when, at what, po at what point would you consider the workers organized? And I said, at that point when the workers no longer wants, want me or those who began the movement, then they'll be organized and be, they'll feel then that they can do it on their own. Then you'll know you're not needed anymore. Yet we know there's always a Cesar Chavez who represents something, an aspiration and a hope and the realization of a, of a human being, people. I'm delighted and I'm honored to have you as my guest. And we're going to hear music for the rest of the program. That will fit. Very happy to be here. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much, Chavez of the uh, National Farm Workers Association. Uh, now the new, the new name is United Farm Workers Organizing Committee. What's the uh, Mexican, the Spanish word for good luck, for joy, uh, for triumph? Uh, buena suerte. Buenas, buena, buena suerte. Buena suerte. Gracias. <laughs> 